Trade Talks, bringing you the best of the buy side. Hello and welcome back to the Trade Talks podcast. Now it's been a while since our last episode, but we've been very busy here at the trade. We celebrated International Women's Day at the London Stock Exchange and some of our team with other industry leaders got to close the ceremonial bell. And there's a video of that if you want to catch that. And recently, we were at the FIX EMEA trading conference, and we've got some content coming out about that, so keep your eyes peeled. But today, we've got a very special podcast with a very interesting guest. Isn't that right, Laurie? Yeah, so uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Laurie McCourtry. I'm the managing editor of The Trade. Um, We've got a really good one for you today. Um, We have... 12 months on, um, you know, this is the 28th of March, and it's the one year anniversary of the sort of disastrous collapse of Archegos Capital Management when when everything um, sort of went down the pan. It was a fairly spectacular collapse. It left the prime brokerage industry absolutely reeling. We saw about $10 billion worth of losses across the street in total. It was probably the biggest collapse since Lehman Brothers back in, in 2008. And it's right up there with the, you know, kind of long term capital management management disasters. Um, We have seen a lot of analysis come out recently about what went wrong, about how it could be prevented. Um, We have a really interesting interview today with Alexandre Bonn, who is the head of marketing for APAC at Murex, who is an exceptionally knowledgeable um, person around this whole topic, um, particularly around the issues of risk management and of risk management models. And I speak to Alex about really quite um, complex levels of detail around what the industry could and should and has done and be doing to improve those risk management models and why we aren't necessarily quite there yet. So I'm going to let us go straight into it and hand over to Alex. In person, online and on the air, it's time for the Trade Talks interview. I'm here with Alexandra Bon, who is the head of marketing, pre-sales and go-to-market for Asia Pacific at Murex. And we are going to discuss today the one-year anniversary of the disastrous chaos of uh, Archegos Capital Management and its collapse, which a year ago left the prime brokerage industry reeling with over $10 billion in losses across the street. The event should have resulted in a major shift in risk attitude, but has it done so? Uh, Alex, we're going to ask you that exact question what lessons have we learned around the risk culture and the issues of, of governance and risk controls within these banks? Hi, Laurie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So what lessons can be learned? Um, I think we could even ask the question, can lesson ever be learned in that industry? Um, it's, it's an interesting one, actually, because um, when we look at what has happened, it has uh, elements uh, that we've seen in many uh, previous failures. Uh, I think when you look at where the losses were the most hurtful, and I mean the example everybody would have in mind would be the, the Credit Suisse case, who I think lost about 4.5 billion uh, in that event. Um, you see, obviously, like often is the case in these major uh, events, failures at mil- multiple points. But really, um, the key part is uh, a failure of uh, 
risk control, governance, and issues with the business and risk culture. Um, in theory, um, when you look at it, the bank had all the right lines of defense uh, in place. They had a uh, uh, risk function attached to that business line. They had an independent uh, risk functions. Uh, they had uh, reporting. They had uh, framework to maintain margins. Um, but it kind of failed at multiple points. Um, you realize that they had weak control, that they had issues with staffing, uh, that uh, risk recommendation got systematically uh, overwritten, um, and that um, there was general distrust between uh, the business and, and the risk functions, um, distrust in the model, distrust in the, in the, in the approach, which uh, meant that the business was able to also kind of push back on some uh, welcome uh, approach in terms of modeling, especially the initial margins, so that the bank would have uh, held a sufficient margin to absorb uh, the potential losses there. Um, and, uh, and there were uh, issues, uh, and they were also able to kind of perform some internal arbitrage um, booking the, the positions uh, with the, the clients as swaps and thus attracting much lower uh, margin figures than, than the, those threads really should have. So that was a part where I think really you see that uh, really the, the, the problem was primarily um, that you didn't have an organization where the risk function when empowered to push back and impose the right, uh, the right measures, and they were quite systematically overwritten. And you had also uh, an healthy uh, culture where you didn't have trust and, and, and good communications and, and, and a right balance between uh, the support function on the risk side and, and, and the business functions. So that's the first thing. Of course, you had a bigger picture. You have other, uh, other issues with, on a more global basis, the fact that um, uh, family office, which was <laughs> in effect uh, a friend managed to build um, such massive uh, leverage positions uh, across multiple prime brokers um, without being really uh, flagged and detected before. So again, one aspect there was uh, certainly linked to the fact that the, most of those positions were uh, executed through uh, swaps instead of being outright purchase of, of securities. So um, the market was kind of surprised and shocked to discover that uh, Archeos was uh, holding such large effective uh, position in, the, in stocks like uh, CBS Viacom and then, and then the others like Tencent and uh, Baidu. Um, because these didn't show on the, on the reports and they were not the one holding the stocks, the, the prime brokers were. But I think this is um, ultimately uh, a story of uh, of greed on the on the, on the business and, and, and issues on the on uh, enforcing the, the right lines of defense uh, effectively, and that's what I think made the difference between some institutions like uh, Credit Suisse and some other institutions that fared better. Uh, I think uh, everybody would probably think here of, uh, of Goldman Sachs, who were uh, exposed, although not to the same level. I mean, they had uh, probably uh, more rigorous management of the initial margin, so they had better coverage there. 
they got also uh, more effective and, and reactive and, and to uh, the detriment of the, uh, the others uh, were probably the first one to run for the door and, and liquidate their positions uh, quicker. So that's, uh, that's probably the, uh, one of the lessons here. I mean, uh, the good old um, recommendation of having a strong risk, uh, risk culture in place or an effective uh, risk control uh, and risk governance processes uh, is uh, not a cure-all, but certainly uh, allows you to uh, to limit uh, this uh, this kind of uh, disaster. So it is something that we've that we've seen time and again. I know one one of the points that you made, um, you know, the, it, the 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 failure that we saw in many of these institutions, and especially with uh, with Credit Suisse, was was this inability to to see their their global exposures in a timely manner that they they just didn't know what their what their exposures were is there anything have we moved on in terms of technology um you know or in terms of systems and processes over the past year that have developed that that are able to help banks um coordinate this this view and this vision so that they have a better perspective of of, of what their risk is and what their exposure is well absolutely uh but i think it's Systems are, of, are sometimes used a bit at, uh, as the excuse. Because um, to be honest, uh, we have seen institutions of, of a similar size being able to uh, have uh, a, a global view of their exposure, uh, at least on a, on a daily or even an intraday basis, on large scale uh, for, for many years. So the investments are potentially important for an institution of the size, operations of the size of, of a Credit Suisse, but uh, it's certainly uh, not uh, not impossible. But to do that, um, you have to override uh, and, and you have to solve a number of organizational challenges because you have here maybe uh, institutions which have been functioning uh, in a decentralized manner for many, many years where you have patchworks of different systems used by different business units, used by different trading entities. Uh, and really what you want ultimately is to have uh, a bit of um, harmonization of this. So you need the businesses to be uh, on board for this kind of major replatforming uh, of, the, of the risk system. Uh, so for that, you obviously need very strong endorsement of the, of the top management. Uh, and after that, yes, there's a, obviously a, a fair bit of work uh, to uh, reach to the point where you have um, a framework which is robust, where you have clean, um, unified data flowing in one uh, core uh, risk, uh, risk system uh, uh, repository, which doesn't mean that it cannot be complemented with ad hoc specialized libraries uh, around it, but you at least have something which can uh, consolidate uh, exposures and give you a, a good sense of where you are, even with some uh, level of uh, I mean, uh, some margin of error, but a good feeling of where, where you are uh, on an intraday basis, and in some cases even on a real-time basis. Uh, that's exactly what we are seeing with the implementation of large-scale XVA management system by, uh, used by uh, CV and XVA desks, uh, and that has been going on for years. So you really have. Um, the, I mean, you really have institutions who are completely able to do much better than the case of that, 
that Credit Suisse horror story where it took them, I think, the, the Paul Weiss report says four to six weeks to really assess what were really the exposure that they had across all the, uh, the trading units, right? Um, now, this being said, um, to put that in place 10 years ago would have been really, uh, I think, a, a massive uh, technology investment, especially for uh, institution of that size. Um, but um, you have a lot of tools that have democratized the, te the technology today. Um, it's not to say that it's, it's, it's easy and, and, and cheap, but um, I think we've made a lot of progress uh, in terms of uh, uh, integration uh, capabilities, so tools around APIs, uh, interoperability uh, options, have very, very uh, powerful tools in terms of um, computational capacity. So on one side, you now have access to um, cloud computing, which allows a bank potentially to leverage even a public cloud to get access to additional computational nodes uh, just when they need it. And that's the, 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 the typically the challenge with this kind of very big uh, risk management uh, models that, that you need to run very big batches of calculations. So you need access to a lot of computational power but for a limited period of time. So uh, the cloud gives you the ability to just get those this computational power, use it, and then release it without having to host gigantic farms of servers that will be sitting idle most of the time. So it becomes much more cost effective. And then you have a lot of uh, interesting development over the last 10 years around um, high performance computing techniques using GPUs, um, and other uh, financial engineering techniques, which I think are make it much more uh, easily accessible uh, to even uh, smaller, uh, quite small institutions with very limited budgets. Uh, you mentioned um, the, the report following the disaster. Um, and one of the things I think was interesting in that report um, around Credit Suisse, I think that there was a recommendation for um, the potential for an XBA desk to play a bigger role. Could you tell us a little bit, um, maybe for our listeners that, that aren't familiar with it, what is an XVA desk? What does it do and, and how could it help? Um, and, you know, would it be possible for an XVA desk to play a bigger role in, in prime broking? Uh, that was an interesting uh, finding and, and one that, that spurred, I think, quite a fair bit of discussion in the, uh, in the industry because not everybody agreed with the, with the idea. But just to uh, step back, so um, XVA, so XVA stands for uh, cross-valuation adjustments. So valuation adjustments are metrics like CVA, the credit valuation adjustment, or FVA, the funding valuation adjustments, where basically you try to assess what is uh, should be the impact of a risk or cost that you're going to take by onboarding a position that is not in the uh, risk-neutral prices of a, of a transaction. So for instance, if you enter um, a swap transaction uh, with a client like Kegos, um, you say, well, if I enter that swap with Archegos, or if I enter it very well collateralized with, uh, uh, let's say, JP Morgan, um, I can sense that the, the risk is not the same. So the value should not be the same. So that's not something that is in the natural price, but we try to assess that. And the idea of XVA Desk is to set up um, a kind of an independent function that is going to assess all those additional risks and tell the business what is the right value at which to take that business, what is the right price for that trade. So the idea is really 
at least originally, to find the right uh, the way to give the right incentive to the business. Because you can't ask, let's say, uh, an equities trader, commodities trader, to make the right decision about uh, uh, what is the right value of credit of a counterparty. They're, they're supposed to know everything about equity derivatives, not about credit of their counterparties. But you don't want them making kind of uh, uninformed decisions and then trading at the price which is not the right price. So what you do is you can set up that function like the classic support uh, trading desk. And what this desk is, at the point of doing a new transaction or modifying a transaction, the originating business gets the value of that, the, the, the price of that additional risk for funding, for credit from the XVA desk. And in some setups, the most common one or the most advanced ones, they will actually pay a premium to the XVA desk. And that premium will give them an insurance. So the XVA desk will then take away that credit risk, counterparty credit risk from them and they will be in charge of managing it. So putting hedges or reserves to, to take care of it. So in that way, uh, you basically try to ensure that your business is making the, the transaction at the right price and they focus on what they, they, need, they, they, they do best, which is, okay, managing an, an equity exposure and an equity portfolio. And the uh, CVA desk or XVA desk take the responsibility of managing that uh, counterparty credit risk on an ongoing basis. So, so that's really uh, the idea. Now, um, this type of function, and they, they've existed at uh, large dealers for, I mean, since the mid 90s, uh, but they are still seen sometimes as kind of a, a bit mysterious or kind of advanced at, at smaller institutions. So not every bank uh, has them in place. And they typically operate uh, usually with a mandate which is more focusing on OTC de the, the, the trading of OTC derivatives. Um, very often uh, what happens on the, on the prime brokerage side is not necessarily captured or, or actively uh, managed by the XVA desk, although often uh, in many institutions uh, they will be kind of looped in and have a view on the, the exposure to which are coming from that, uh, that business. Um, so the idea that was highlighted, I think, in the, in the Paul Weiss uh, report really was that um, the XVA desk at Credit Suisse had the right expertise to monitor, analyze this exposure and manage this kind of counterparty risk. So both before the issue happened, so they had all the right tools to perform sensitivity analysis, understand what was driving the exposure to have uh, to be able to inform the rest of the of the business function about what were the actual level of exposure that the business was taking there, which was pretty much insane given the, the leverage they were giving uh, Archegos. And then after that, they also have an expertise in managing the resolution of a default. So they could have probably played a more active role supporting the uh, the business function and the risk function there. Now. Uh, this, as I said, was, was spurred some, some discussions uh, when, when this came out because uh, you had some institutions pushing back saying, well, it's not at all the role of an XVA desk to be controlling what the, the business does. They're supposed to be a business enabler. Uh, and um, 
the, their expertise is really going to be in understanding the bank, understand the exposures. But um, who should manage the exposure probably should still be a proper independent risk function. Um, so you have that. Uh, it turns out that in the market, you have many flavors of XVA desk. They really come in all shapes and forms. So uh, an XVA desk can be structured as, as a unit in the, the training department. It can be structured in, a, in the risk department and then it plays typically a more kind of role closer to risk control and usually not uh, charging the fee in that case, but just helping price the transactions. Uh, or it can be in the treasury function. And, and so they can have quite different mandates. In some banks, they have the ability to veto uh, trades that they seem as too large or too risky. Uh, but in most places, they don't. I mean, that's the it's really risk management is supposed to play that role. But what they will do, however, is if you're taking a, a risk which is unreasonable, they will just slap a very big spread uh, on, uh, on on what what is the, the price you should charge to the client. And, and that should be the, a deterrent that would force you to actually, uh, if you can do the trade, do the trade at the right price given this, the, 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 the risk taken. And here, um, in the case of, uh, of Credit Suisse, for instance, they would have had the right model to assess the, the exposure uh, of the, that are, were being taken. And they would have seen that the margins that were being collected uh, uh, against those exposures were really not uh, commensurate with uh, with the risk. I mean, I think in the case of Credit Suisse, uh, you had uh, something like a 10 times exposures and they were just having a, using a, a simple 10% of, of notional uh, margin or something like this. Uh, and they didn't have a, a dynamic reassessment of the, of the margins. So even though uh, the implementation of that dynamic margin calculation for that business had not been implemented. And if you're trying, then you're passing on that exposure to a function on the next VA desk, which then tells you, well, looking at what you have to protect you and what is the exposure you're taking, we think that the price is this, and they will give you a very large price and explain, well, that's because your margin is not enough. Then that would force kind of a, a reconciliation uh, exercise there. And that's where, um, and that, I think that's the thing which is a bit sad actually in the, in the Credit Suisse part, because they had apparently a, a risk function which had built um, a system uh, which was able to do like dynamic uh, margin uh, assessment. So basically, they would have been able to call initial margin uh, on a dynamic basis, looking at not only the notional but a mark to market basis, and probably also looking at the, uh, taking into account the volatility of the exposures. And but they, this was blocked in terms of implementation. It was not implemented in time to uh, to manage the uh, the art traders uh, situation. But if I remember well, what was explained in the report, I think when they ran, they te they did a test run on this. I mean, they they calculated that they would have needed an extra three point three billion dollars of of initial margin uh, when they were holding something like two hundred fifty millions. So. It wouldn't be enough to completely isolate them from the, the the losses that they have seen, but it would have covered maybe uh, two thirds of uh, of the losses they had. So just that already would have been would have been good. So 
and that brings us here more. I mean, I think um, the idea of having an, uh, taking inspiration from the XVA desk model. I mean, in some institutions, given the way operations are structured and the way uh, the, the, the role the XVA desk is playing, maybe you can indeed have the XVA desk able to play that role directly. But otherwise, I think the idea is to really try to use that um, uh, inspiration from this XVA desk model in, in two ways. One, using uh, the rigor of managing uh, the data and, and modeling uh, of the exposure so that you have one place where you get a consistent view of your overall uh, exposure with proper modeling of, of, of the risk that you are carrying there and the right tools to do sensitivity analysis, for instance. So that's one. The second, and that's absolutely critical, I think, for institutions like Credit Suisse, which apparently have um, uh, suffered for years of that distrust between business and, and, and risk functions is to use that um, idea of uh, working with the business and to embed and to realign the incentives to make sure that you are not only doing good business by making money but are you also pricing the fact that you shouldn't take uh, the risk to lose your shirt uh, on a deal and that's exactly what is the uh, idea of having an XVA desk in place. That's a function which is typically staffed by people from the business, uh, which operate most often as a kind of a utility uh, function, so not trying to uh, to make a profit uh, for them, the desk, at least in the most common setup. Um, but they talk the language of the business and they're able to have uh, that kind of conversation and speak the language of the business. Um, and then you put in place a mechanism which allows you to realign the, uh, the incentives and, 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 and making sure that you have a constructive dialogue uh, all the time between these different uh, functions. And that, I think, is, uh, is probably um, the most interesting idea that you could pull from the idea of an XVA desk and see how you can try to apply it to businesses like, uh, like prime financing and, uh, and prime broker. Uh, lending uh, to uh, like, like in, uh, in this case. Amazing. Well, I, I think that's been uh, that's been an incredibly deep dive into the potential role of an XVA desk and, and went into into great detail. It was fascinating. I certainly learned uh, something that I didn't know before. Um, I think we we're going to round up the interview now. Um, we've, we've really covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Alex, so much for speaking to us today. Thanks a lot, Laurie. It was a pleasure. Well, that was a great interview with Alexander, and we really appreciate him coming on the show today. He gave us some real deep insights. And uh, moving on, Laurie, we have your first edited magazine coming out for Q1. Uh, this is the first one which has gone out under your full reign. You want to tell us a little bit about what we should expect in this edition? It is. It's really exciting. Our spring edition is out this week, our print edition. So that should be landing on people's desks within the week. Um, and we've got a really good, I mean, obviously I would say this because this is my first edition as managing editor, but I think we've got a really strong edition for this quarter. You know, we've had a bit of a crazy three months. We've seen the Russia-Ukraine war. We've seen interest rates shoot up. We've seen inflation rise. You know, the markets have had a pretty tough time of it. And I think that, you know, while that's not necessarily always... Um, 
um, you know, the, the the best thing um, for the markets themselves. I think for a publication like ours, it definitely provides us with some uh, some pretty interesting copies. So I think we've got an amazing edition out and ready for people to get stuck into. We've got Louise Drummond from Aberdeen, Aberdeen, Aberdeen on the cover, um, and she's she's just such an interesting um, interesting character, and she gives some some fascinating insights to Annie Smith about her time at Aberdeen and her plans after the rebrand. We've got the first ever media interview from Sam Henderson, who is the head trader for EMEA Equities at Invesco. So we are delighted that he decided to choose the trade to give his first interview to the media. Uh, We've got some really strong features. We do a deep dive into the rising costs of market data, which I know is an issue that is a a concern for everybody in the industry at the moment. We've got a analysis of the new UMR phase six which is coming up fast. That deadline is on September 1st. So if you're not aware of that, read our feature because that will tell you everything that you need to know and a whole ton of other stuff besides. So that should be landing with people certainly by Friday and it will be going up on the website over the next couple of months as well. So keep an eye out. Exciting times. I'm looking forward to getting mine in the post. Now, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Uh, it's been great speaking with you, Laurie. It's been great speaking with Alexander. And thank you all at home for clicking back. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Trade Talks podcast, bringing you the best of the buy side.